everybody. This is Stephanie Ruper. Thank you for tuning in to the Naked Humanity, Once the Meaning of Everything podcast. Today is episode number 31, and I have on Dr. Dennis LaRusso, who is a specialist in the ways in which uh, work and faith and or religion uh, intersect in America today. This is all very interesting Dennis and I have already spoken, and we had a fantastic conversation about the history of religion and work, why religion and work are so intertwined in America today. And we talk about ways in which spirituality is used within and by workplaces and how this can affect employees, and also ways in which the discourse on religious freedom or we might just say ways in which free speech for religious groups uh, are being used by political parties on both the right and the left to further their own political agendas. All very interesting, very cool stuff. I first met Dennis at a conference for scholars of religion uh, in the fall of last year and was really struck by his really nuanced understanding of the issues and unique approach very sophisticated understanding of religion, but also really understanding the importance of data and empiricism in in his work. And so Dennis has, I think, really high quality, really important stuff to say, both about who we are as a species and also specifically about who we are as Americans uh, today on the podcast. So I'm really Um, Looking forward to bringing him on. I'll read you a little bit of his bio just to give you a closer view of what he gets up to. Dr. James Dennis LaRusso completed his PhD in religion at Emory University in Atlanta. His research focused broadly on the intersection of religion, spirituality, and political economy in the United States. Drawing on ethnography, cultural history, and critical theory, His dissertation, entitled The Libertarian Ethic and the Spirit of Global Capital, asserts that the interest in spirituality in the workplace has grown alongside and in relation to broad socioeconomic changes over the last half century, with particular attention to globalizing and the shift to a post-manufacturing economy. He is a fellow, a a researcher at Princeton's Faith and Work Initiative, and there he investigates how firms are incorporating practices such as mindfulness meditation into the workplace. He has a book out, which is fantastic, uh, published by an academic press called uh, Spirituality, Corporate Culture, and American Business. It was published in 2017. Dennis is a fantastic and really enlightening guest. I am very excited to have him on. So without further ado, here is Dr. Dennis LaRusso. Okay. Hi, welcome, Dennis. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah. Um, So we were just, of course, chatting and you were telling me uh, you have, you've been at, how long have you been at Princeton now? A couple of years? I've been here for almost five years. Um, I started as a postdoctoral research associate at the uh, Faith and Work Initiative, which is a a small initiative outfit uh, in the uh, Center for the Study of Religion at Princeton University. So, we do the center itself is kind of an interdisciplinary center of uh, different like a, like researchers from like a huge spectrum 
of graduate students and scholars from, you know, a variety of disciplines, but are all in some way doing work related to religion. Um, so it's, it's a quirky experiment in trying to sort of talk across different specialists, you know, specialist areas. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. So five years is a long time. Did, did you have a book come out of it? I did. Um, so I, I, uh, my dissertation, which I completed at Emory University, was on a movement in the business world um, that goes by a number of labels, but uh, I, the label I fell on was uh, that I used as workplace spirituality. So uh, it's basically uh, a movement that emerged really in the late 90s, early 2000s in um, uh, American, various parts of the American business world, business schools, and um, um, uh, mark, uh, businesses in the marketplace that are interested in integrating spirituality, faith, religion into the workplace. Um, okay. So it means a lot of different things. It goes a lot of different directions, um, but we can talk more about that as well. So. Yeah, we, we definitely will. So uh, before we get into that, which is very exciting. Uh, and I remember when we met, uh, I was just on my way back from San Francisco and experiencing the spirituality and workplace culture there, which is very interesting. And again, we can shelve that for later, but, um, I'm, I'm very interested in, although I know fairly little about how deeply intertwined work and faith or work and religion are um, in the States. And so if you could maybe give us a little bit of background in terms of how that came to be and, and what it's like today. Yeah, well, it's, 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 a, it's a difficult question to answer because... Um, I it's think enormous. <laughs> well, yeah, it's a huge question. And, but actually, I mean, like the question itself um, kind of works on the assumption that um, it's somewhat unique. I think, but, you know, if you look, but I mean, I think that the, the relationship to, between what we might call religion and what we would recognize as religion and work and human labor you know, really goes back to probably prehistory. Mm. I mean, if you look at, um, you know, the archaeological record and things like, you know, like the building of Stonehenge and other megaliths, the pyramids of Egypt, like all of these things in some way were you know, involved like religious ideas, concepts, and, you know, and, and the way that they were used to sort of organize labor into doing these massive projects. Um, as far as uh, the United States go, goes, we really mean something more specific, which is, you know, uh, America as a market economy. Um, so when we talk about work, we mean like paid employment, right? Um, generally. And, uh, uh, you know, religion, um, I think, sort of kind of, refer I mean, I think if you look at American history, when we talk about religion in America, and eh, we, kind of, we really mostly mean Christianity, I think. Um, and uh, as far as them being intertwined, I mean, if you look through the foundations of my field, which is uh, you know, the study of religion and society, um, the foundational scholar is, is a German uh, scholar, Max Weber, who, um, you know, made the argument that if you want to understand capitalism, and he talks a lot about American capitalism, he's writing at the beginning of the 20th century, 
you have to understand religion. Um, and part of this was he's sort of looking around at different countries and he's saying, oh, you know, some countries are doing better than others. Uh, some are more affluent, some are more industrialized than others. Um, what is it about these countries that makes them different? And he comes up with this novel idea that like, well, maybe it has something to do with, um, you know, religion. Um, and he makes this argument that, and we've probably all heard the cliche, the Protestant work ethic. Um, so he writes this seminal piece called the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism, where he makes the argument that, uh, you know, uh, Protestant theology actually can explain like why, uh, capitalism took off in, in, Western Europe and North America, that there are specific theological principles built in that come out of the Protestant Reformation that, um, you know, made sort of work as a kind of virtue, uh, something, you know, something um, that people needed to strive for. Um, and so, you know, if you look back at this relationship in American history, what you see is um, as America industrializes in the 19th century, um, there's, you know, it's being sort of the, on the cultural front, it's being driven by this idea that it, to be a good person, you need to work hard. You need to be industrious. You need to, um, you know, avoid idleness and all of this kind of stuff. And Weber says that comes from, uh, you know, uh, uh, ideas from people like Martin Luther who talked about, um, the idea of vocation, that uh, all work can be a form of, um, you know, can be a way of glorifying God, that no matter what it is. Um, prior to the Reformation, there was the assumption that, um, you know, work was kind of a necessary evil and that the only real vocational work, work for, you know, um, you know, uh, the work of the God's work, if you will, um, were the, was the work of the church. Luther radically turns that on its head and says, you know, all work is a form of, you know, doing God's will. Um, and some other changes along the way, I won't bore you with, but basically Weber's argument is that eventually the religious element of this kind of drops away, but you're left with these, these you know, this idea that work is a virtue and that that is sort of a, a fundamental driving force for um, uh, the unfolding of capitalism in modern life. Um, so I think it's it's sort of you know sort of second nature that we you know, living in a capitalist society like the United States that you know we kind of take that for granted. Like yeah, work is good. Work is good in in and of itself. It's like a display of our character. We all want you know our our success is an indication of, of our, um, of our moral standing, that kind of thing. And, um, so, you know, that's the basic argument. So I think almost from the, like the beginnings of the study of religion, um, you have this recognition that there's this link between religion and work that is, uh, really essential. So, yeah. I really appreciate that. And I actually, hadn't thought about religion and work outside of the American context, which to me feels very ignorant and small. And I feel stupid for that now. Uh, 
thinking about the pyramids, I think is, is really interesting. So I'm going to, I'm going to sit with religion and labor in my head for a little bit. Uh, of course it makes total sense and that's all very interesting. And we all love and hate and love Weber. <laughs> sure. I don't know how many dissertations on religion are written that don't reference him. Right. Um, so, okay. So then how is all of that sort of related to the type of thing that you have been focusing on or that you focused on in your dissertation when we talk about how uh, religion is existing in, in the workplace? Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I think if we, if we take Baber as our sort of jumping off point, um, and take his argument seriously, I mean, there are a lot of criticisms of Baber's work, um, you know, and, and studies that have shown that perhaps it's not quite as simple as his explanation. Um, you know, uh, the assumption that somehow religion has been bifurcated out of the workplace, um, which is a point that he wants to make about you know, the spirit of capitalism no longer has this religious element to it. Um, if we can, so I think what I'm trying to get at is that uh, by the late 20th century, a lot of people in the business world start to think about this um, secular workplace as being problematic. That you know, I can't be my whole self at work because I have to check my personal moral values at the door. And so, um, you know, some of this comes out of the, to the counterculture where you have people that are, you know, one of the main taglines of the counterculture was like, be authentic, live an authentic life, right? And how do you do that if you're, if you have to check part of yourself at the door when you walk mm. in? Um, and so in, by the, so the, the, the popular, the narrative that these people, um, started to think about was like, how do we reintegrate this? How do we, how do we set, create the conditions where people can come to work and be all that they really are, including their faith or their spirituality. Mm -hmm. um, and so this movement kind of coalesces by around 2000, um, and, uh, particularly in, among management scholars, management thinkers, and um, business elites, they begin to sort of try and reshape the way business is done, the way workplace culture operates, so that it can either, you know, uh, you know uh, accommodate people's faith or religion or spirituality, whatever you want to call it, or you even have these cases where business owners are actually trying to create a spiritual culture in the workplace that uh, will nurture the spiritual needs of their employees. So I guess the way you would understand workplace spirituality is this, you know, at least in terms of it's the way it's advocates would describe is like, it's this new recognition that spirituality matters. And that if you want to, you know, being you know, doing good business means taking care of those needs, not just like, um, you know, providing a, a paycheck and health benefits or whatever that you have to actually do more. And then that actually ends up resulting in, um, you know, success for the business. So. Right. Which is why I think I have often seen memes on social media where, 
people are laughing because they're, or whatever, they're joking because their bosses are saying, do yoga or come here and, you know, be really spiritual. But by the way, you only get nine holiday days a year. And, you know, like we're actually, we're actually working for our bottom line. And so we have this sort of way of making it seem like we're trying to take care of you, but actually we're, we're concerned with our bottom line. Is that something that you see in the literature? Yeah. Yeah. So I mentioned the dissertation. I didn't actually get to name the book, which was based on the dissertation. So um, the book that I wrote, which came out in 2017 with Bloomsbury Academic Press is called Spirituality, Corporate Culture, and American Business. Uh, The subtitle is The Neoliberal Ethic and the Spirit of Global Capital. That's a mouthful. Um, but I was interested in under like I, I you know I wanted to take these narratives of the origin story of workplace spirituality and sort of put them to the test and really think about like is this about is this movement in the business world really about meeting the spiritual needs of employees or is there a more complex story to be told right and you know I make the argument that in fact like if you look at how it developed really beginning decades before this, before the late nineties, um, you can see the emergence of this new kind of rhetoric in the corporate world around meeting individual immaterial needs, um, but creating a kind of, you know, a humane workplace, um, part of which becomes the spirituality uh, concept as well. Um, it's really grounded in anxieties in the business world in the late 60s, early 70s around uh, uh, declining levels of productivity um, associated with like worker dissatisfaction. Um, The government actually uh, conducts a study uh, in the Nixon administration um, from the Department of um, Health, Welfare and Education that tries to figure out how to deal with the problem of the declining productive worker. And they start to turn, their answer ends up not being sort of looking at like increased global competition, things like that, but rather like workers aren't happy. How can we make them happy? Um, And they start to look at some of these, um, the work of some of these thinkers out there who are beginning to talk about spiritual needs. So if you if you go back in history, you can find these little instances where, you know, this conversation about spirituality at work is also, you know, I think can be traced back to these real pragmatic concerns about profitability. Um, you know, that like our workers have living wages, they have good pensions, all of this, but they're still unhappy. We need to add more um, in order to, you know, boost productivity. And over time, I think as this takes place, there's a lot of fundamental shifts in the way work is organized in the 1980s with downsizing and mergers and the erosion of like organized labor and things. So what you end up seeing is this trend where living wages decline, like all of those, you know, uh, retirement benefits move from pensions to 401ks, like everything is destabilized materially. Like the material rewards of work, work become destabilized, but what gets ends up getting promoted is this other rhetoric about, you know, uh, creating a great place to work. 
right? So, you know, there's this whole side of it where of workplace spirituality that fits right into like conventional business wisdom. It's not that radical. It's, it's, it's a way of, it's just an extension. And this is the argument I make. It's an extension of sort of pre-existing developments in corporate culture so that, you know, we can garner employee loyalty. We can tie the employee's sense of self to the culture of the company and find ways to like, you know, cut costs at the same time. Um, so there's this, this really ambiguous, uh, you know, relationship that this workplace spirituality movement has between the employer and the employee, because, you know, I don't doubt that many of of the advocates of this movement actually want good things for, you know, employees. They want to create this humane workplace, but what they're doing is embedded in this larger trend that ends up producing some really ethically questionable results. So, Mm. yeah, that's, That's fascinating. And I I happen to be friends with a lot of people who work at companies that do this sort of thing in, in, like you said, like the much larger umbrella, right? They have gyms, they Mm -hmm. serve all your meals and you're there like 14 hours a day, but it's basically, you know, it's, it's basically everything's given to you and and you're encouraged to whatever, ride a skateboard in the hallways, that sort of stuff. Uh, And and so I wonder, like, I, I know people who are satisfied in a way by this, but maybe for a few years because they burn out, right? So are there ways in which do they, are they actually successful? Are they meeting their ends of, of bottom lines? And of course, they're not always enriching people's actual spiritual or emotional well-being, but in what ways are they like achieving their success, quote unquote, and in what ways is this a problem? Um, well, I mean, it's, you know, it's really hard. Like there really isn't empirical evidence to demonstrate, like, if they do this, then productivity goes up. So, um, Mm. any claims that you'll see linking, you know, perform like improved performance, fiscal performance, or, 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 uh, you know, labor productivity, that kind of thing. Um, that's all just anecdotal. Like none of it is grounded in like some kind of science, social scientific study that can actually demonstrate one does the other. Um, but you know, it is true that a lot of, uh, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to actually like, you know, dismiss, uh, the experiences of people in the working world that are engaged in this kind of stuff, you know, um, you know, that, that, you know, Google for instance has, um, uh, a program called search inside yourself, which is, um, loosely based on Buddhist meditation principles. It's you know, kind of like the corporate mindfulness movement. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of people that, that, that engage in these programs at work and, and it really does make work something they love to do. Um, you know, so, but Google's kind of like, it's a very specific example, right? Like Google has lots of money. Um, employees do very well there. You know, it's, it's in, it's when you see this kind of thing being applied in you know, other kinds of industries where, it, you know, like retail or customer service, because uh, there are, there are businesses that do this, um, where, you know, where you have low wage, part-time, 
employees that um, are also gaining these kind of experiential benefits from being a part of this, you know, a strong sense of empowerment and a strong sense of self, um, a more positive outlook on, um, you know, their work, like a sense of higher purpose in what they're doing. Um, but does that obscure like some of the material injustices that they may be subject to, you know? So, um, I, one of the, uh, people I interviewed for my dissertation was a gentleman who spent like 30 years in IBM as an engineer. And he's a, he's a outspoken advocate for bringing Zen Buddhism into the workplace. And he tells stories about how using the regular Zen practice um, helped him thrive in this environment. But if you look with a kind of critical eye at some of his stories, you're like, begin to wonder like, you know, what are the implications of this? So like, for example, he tells the story of a, uh, an authoritarian boss that he had for a while um, who treated employees with you know, dehumanized them, um, you know, was quick to fire people that, you know, uh, went against his agenda or whatever. And this, this gentleman I was interviewing, you know, he shared an experience about, you know, uh, one conflict he had with him. Um, and he was really upset about it. You know, he, he had been accosted, boss used profanity, all this. And so he goes back to his, uh, uh, goes home, meditates for a couple of days. And like, he realizes that, okay, the problem is this person is just spiritually ill. Okay. So I, the problem isn't with me. The problem is like this person. And so I'm going to feel sorry for this person. So in some ways it shifts his perspective so that he can kind of cope with this, what is essentially a hostile work environment. Um, but what it doesn't do is it doesn't, this kind of practice teaches him that the problem is shifting perspective, not the fact that the boss might just be a bad boss and that the work environment itself may be, you know, that there may be harsh working conditions, right? So it obscures those kinds of realities while emphasizing others. Um, and so when you look at this, if you were to transplant a similar situation into a, like a, like a part-time retail environment, um, you know, you see the same kind of things where people um, are, so they're engaging in whatever kinds of spiritual practices that the uh, company employs. Um, and then what it ends up doing is it helps that it, it helps them acquiesce to the interests of management. Um, you know, there's, I, I did some work on a, on a coffee chain on, on the West coast that explicitly identifies as spiritual. And, you know, I heard stories from employees talking about how, um, you know, they, uh, one, one individual, had requested or they wanted to take a trip to Hawaii to work on their like spiritual development. And so they just went and bought the tickets because part of what they're taught in this company is you have to kind of take the leap of faith. Right. So they saw this as sort of embodying the principles of this spiritual culture that they were learning through their workplace. Um, but they didn't ask for the time off first. Right. 
so when they came back to the managers and said, I've bought these tickets, blah, 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 you know, this is part of, you know, my, my ongoing personal development spiritually, they were quickly corrected on how they were misinterpreting and misunderstanding, like what the spiritual uh, perspective was supposed to be teaching and that they were actually negatively affecting the work environment and the, and their peers uh, spiritually by not sort of going about it the right way, which was always ask permission before you request, uh, before you make a decision to take time off. Right. And so that's just a small example of how, you know, in these environments where, you know, people are more marginal, um, you know, these, that the spiritual discourse and the spiritual practice and beliefs that exist in these workplace cultures ends up getting sort of used as a managerial strategy. So, um, yeah, so it becomes a, it becomes an opportunity to perhaps exploit the workforce. It does make, yeah, that does actually make sense. So I, I do, I want to also talk about now is, is it your current work that's on sort of the first amendment issues in, in the workplace? Yeah, I definitely, I want to dig into that too. So um, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, how this deep intertwining that we see between religion and work and how it's coming and going and always present in the workplace. Like how was that something that is providing a platform for these really big debates about religion in the workplace to, to be taking place, right? Like there are a number of very prominent uh, ways in which this is playing out today. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. And, and what I've been describing is a, is a very niche kind of phenomenon that exists in the business world. Um, so, but, but it is part of the sort of larger, um, I think, uh, shift and an attention to the role of religion in the workplace in the United States in particular. So yeah, somewhat, this is, so what I've been describing is a somewhat niche movement in the business world, um, but it's part of this sort of broader shift uh, interest uh, in bringing one's whole self to work. And uh, that's begun to play out really in the last decade or so uh, around the issue of like the role of religious liberty, like the extent to which religious liberty should be um, maximized um, or in, in particularly in the workplace or in the marketplace. And uh, so what I'm looking, what I've been thinking about deeply now is uh, really sort of a lot of legal changes that have occurred um, in the last 10 years um, that have carved out increasingly carved out a protective zone around individuals um, for religious liberty um, in, in, in different ways. So this plays out, if I'm not being clear, as I get more concrete, maybe it'll make sense. But um, so really begins with the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which happened, which was passed by Congress in 1993. Um, and it was, it was specifically rated, related to a workplace issue where you had two individuals from the Native American church uh, in the northwestern United States who were fired um, because they used peyote. Uh, and it was part of their religious practice. And Congress 
almost unanimously passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act as a way to protect individuals like this in the future. And so you have religious minorities, um, you know, the issue was around religious minorities and and protecting their rights. Yeah, in you know, so the, uh, the what the Religious Freedom Restoration Act does is it says, look, even if you have a law like this drug is illegal, okay, that's religiously neutral, um, you can't. Uh, there there is some like room for exemption for for people who you know whose religious practice may rely on that um and so but this but the the rfra ends up getting taken up late in later years for very different purposes and so um i don't know if you probably one of the big the, the first big one was uh, the hobby lobby case back in which was decided back in 2014 which involved the owners of a closely held corporation hobby lobby which identified they identify themselves as evangelical Christians, and they were saying, "All right, look, we don't want to um, have to follow the Affordable Care Act's contraception mandate." There are a couple of uh, contraception methods that they were required by law to offer through the health benefits. They're like, "We consider these to be um, basically forms of abortion based on a religious base," and they won. The Supreme Court said, "Yes, that's correct." you are protected and exempt from following that part of the law. Um, so the implication of that was that um, corporations, closely held corporations, so corporations not traded publicly, uh, actually have First Amendment protection under the free exercise clause of the First Amendment. So uh, that Congress shall make no law that prohibits the free exercise of religion. Um, as predicted, you have sort of your economic and political conservatives sort of defending this and saying that's the right decision. And you have your sort of political progressives or liberals, whatever, sort of falling on the other side and saying, no, this is a, you know, this is an attack on the reproductive rights of, of women. Um, so, uh, the ne there's a, the next decision kind of plays out along similar political lines, but sort of in opposing uh, understandings of what religious liberty means. So there's another case that is decided the very next year involving Abercrombie and Fitch and a young Muslim woman who was denied employment there because they uh, the company was concerned she was wearing a, a headscarf hijab. Uh, that she was not going to be able to follow the dress code. She didn't ask for an exception, but um, the employee, the employer, Abercrombie & Fitch, anticipated that she might and therefore chose not to hire her. So the case went to the Supreme Court and they said, no, this is not an undue burden on the business to accommodate this, to make this change. And so um, Abercrombie & Fitch lost. But again, the political and religious conservatives kind of started using a different argument to say defend Abercrombie and Fitch and say, no, a business should now be able to decide whatever it wants to do. You know, like it, it you know, it shouldn't, um, you know, religious liberty should be restricted in this case. And then you had political uh, liberals, uh, 
sort of defending the religious liberty, you know, so there's ways in what my point is that, that you see ways in which religious liberty is getting used in different in different camps inconsistently, basically to serve sort of what I would say partisan partisan goals. Um, and then I think most recently, uh, last year, uh, there was a case, a high profile case with um, the uh, wedding cake baker in Colorado, a, ma a masterpiece cake shop that denied, um, uh, you know, refused to make a wedding cake for a same sex wedding, right? And you sort of saw the same dynamics play out there, and they they won as well. Um, you know, the the cake, it was the Supreme Court said that the you know, that, uh, called the state of Colorado violated the religious liberty of the business owner. Um, you know, and that this would be a fundamental sort of transgression of, of their religious beliefs to be forced to participate. They, were, they considered this to be a participation in a religious in, in a in a religious ceremony that violated their own religious beliefs. Um, so it's because like it sort of built momentum on itself, is my point. And so I think we can expect to probably see more and more of this. Um, as, as we move forward, I think religious liberty has become the space where people on all sides of the political spectrum are saying, yeah, like, you know, the relationship to religion in the marketplace is a, you know, is a place that we need to, um, we can use religious liberty as an argument to sort of advocate for our goals. Mm. Um, yeah. That's all fascinating to me i'm struck by the consistency of the supreme court at least in the cases you mentioned every time it ruled in favor of religious freedom regardless of which political side was advocating for it um is that has that been fairly consistent in cases other than these you mentioned um well no i mean i think that i think that's right i think that they are very consistent in that sense and i think that's a reflection of the nature of the the justices on the court these days that you have, um, you know, a court that is very, obviously it's a, overall it's a conservative court, um, but that that means in, in our day and age, a kind of libertarian sensibility that, um, it, you know, maximum, maximize, maximizing individual liberty uh, and particularly religious liberty in these cases um, is in the interests of American society. So like that falls in line with this larger trend in legal changes, which is first amendment cases around religious liberty prior to sort of the last couple of decades had revolved around like religious institutions. Okay. Um, you know, recognized religious organizations. Um, and it's sort of because, you know, what, what the trend has been is to make it more about individuals, individual issues of conscience. Right. Mm. And then this, the same thing happened with the, the recent decision around the Second Amendment with gun rights as well. That you saw, you know, um, uh, you know, there was a decision. I'm not the expert here, so I can't give you the year, but it was within the last 10 years. The Supreme Court made a decision that said, yes, the Second Amendment actually means individuals can own guns, whereas prior to that, it hadn't been settled whether or not that meant a well-regulated militia could uh, could have you know uh, the right to bear arms, or whether it was an individual right. Um, and so you see this overall trajectory 
to protect the space of individuals um, from government intervention. Um, and that's, that's particularly um, important for understanding how religious liberty is being interpreted today. Yeah, that's very fascinating. I actually, I have been thinking a lot. I'm actually reading a book right now on the origins of Western individualism. And I've been doing a lot of thinking about uh, this sort of trajectory and how it has influenced us. And we often, we, of course, all of these discussions are very political and the Supreme Court is also very political, but I think it's important to bear in mind that there are other cultural factors that are playing a role in this, right? And you're talking a lot about the prioritization of individual rights. And that is in a way, at least in some part, it's tied to, I think this culture we have right now, you were talking about being authentic, mm-hmm. right? And, and being yourself. And that is also a really high really high value of Americans and something that is probably shared by the vast majority, something that unites the parties, despite the fact that they come down on different sides in terms of who you should be protecting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's right. I mean, um, you know, the, I mean, going back to sort of what we were talking about earlier with workplace spirituality, like the whole concept of spirituality in the, in the sort of contemporary sense, um, you know, has been you can understand as the sort of move to make spiritual like spirituality faith religious practice more individualistic outside of institutions in a sense right like so um it all falls in line with this larger um i i would actually say like libertarian sort of uh, underlying principle that um you know, I think people of all political persuasions in the United States uh, just assume, you know, we're, 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 we're nurtured in that environment and we sort of expect it, you know. Right. Uh, but generally speaking, this rhetoric or this discourse around religious freedom is now you're, you're using the language of it's being used, right? And so it's almost like a tool that political parties leverage for their own interest when it suits them, right? Is that sort of what you mean when you say that? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, you know, I also, um, I, I, I tend to have a very complicated understanding of <laughs> what religion is. And so, um, you know, I think uh, it's almost unhelpful for us. And we oftentimes talk about religion in the public disc in, in public conversations as if it were this really tangible identifiable thing out there that we can point to right it's something that either um resides in the cosmos or it's something that resides within yourself like we all have a spiritual side or something the reason i probably use the talk about it in this utilitarian way like it's something that we use is because it the most helpful way to understand uh, I think religion uh, and how it plays out in public life is to look at it as something that we, it, it, there's this reservoir of cultural like ideas about religion is, and we draw on them to make sense and to, you know, uh, you know work towards various goals. And so like our choice to decide this is a religious liberty case um, or this is a, you know, a case about um, civil rights, you know, even you know, 
you know, very much depends on how salient these strategies are. So, you know, for the Hobby Lobby case, you know, you find it would it would have been radically unhelpful <laughs> for, um, you know, the opponents of Hobby Lobby to make it about religion. They made it about reproductive rights. They made it about human rights, in a sense. Um, you know, so whether or not they think it's a, you could, you could easily argue that it was a religious liberty case because you could say that the, the women who are subjected to that um, regime of, you know, the contraception ban in that, in that company, uh, they, their religious rights weren't being considered. You know, maybe they believed that according to their religious beliefs, they should have access to these things, right? Uh, but nobody wanted to make that argument because it was seen as was probably seen as unhelpful, right? Like, or it just didn't seem wouldn't have even intuitive. So yeah, I mean, I tend to sort of approach these things as sort of very as a, as strategies because I think that that's really how we can understand, really get at like exposing the underlying dynamics that are happening. So, yeah, and that's why I appreciate so much having these conversations with people who have studied religion, right? Because you understand how much nuance there is there. And also, I think most people who study religion and in the humanities in general understand that power, however we're construing it, is sort of central, right, to what we do. And so it renders our categories fluid uh, and and we do adopt ideas that serve our interest or that align with the power structures that we align ourselves with. And so it, it's totally, um, totally makes sense that people would, you know, grab or choose these arguments. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, if you look at those, those cases we talked about, like what you find is you have one group of sort of, you know, like the, 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 the you know, political conservatives what they're actually doing over and over again isn't necessarily defending religious liberty, but they're defending the rights of business and business owners, right? And on the other side, what you have is you have people defending the rights of marginalized or um, you know working class people, um, and they use religious liberty as an argument as it suits that, right? And so, like if we think about religion as the stable thing, like you know uh, we should always protect religious liberty. Uh, you know, then you can't really see it, it, what I'm saying is it sort of masks those underlying uh, consistencies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's very interesting. That little ding. <laughs> I think you, what, you get a notification on your phone. Um, <laughs> the problem with having Mac is it all ties in together. So. Right. Uh, well, that's, that's actually probably a good time's up for us. Um, do you have any final things you'd like to say before we wrap up? Um, no, I, I, I mean, I, I really appreciate the conversation and the opportunity to talk about uh, the work that I'm doing. Um, you know, I, th I do, I, I really um, appreciate the fact that you are, are bringing, you know, what is it like, us as religious scholars of religion, we don't oftentimes, we're not the ones that get the phone calls to go on <laughs> or something and talk about our, our, uh, our perspectives on these things. And what we end up, you know, I think, I think our public conversation suffered for that. Um, and I, and I think that the work that this podcast does, uh, is, is um, you know, uh, helping to remedy that. So I appreciate that. 
You're so nice. Every once in a while, when I ask people for final thoughts, they say something really nice about the podcast. And I just, that's very kind of you. Uh, yes, I, I am actually, I am very much trying. And I do think that this, this nuance in religion is important. Um, so thank you. Do you have any, we were just talking about Twitter uh, and how it's such a, a unproductive platform. Do you have anywhere that people can or should be following you or do you not care? Do I have any, I'm sorry. I, I missed the last part of that. Question. Do you have like social media profiles you would, would or like people to follow or does it not matter? <laughs> um, well, I mean, you know, I think uh, a really easy one that I find to be uh, it, uh, it really helpful for thinking in a more nuanced way about the role of religion in America is uh, there's a scholar blog out of the University of Alabama called Culture on the Edge. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, they do various posts from scholars. Uh, they're, they're also very graduate student and undergraduate student friendly. So they allow, um, they bring in uh, their perspectives as well um, to think about uh issues of religion and identity um, and you know, various other sort of social concerns, um, you know, but I think they really provide, they do a really good job of providing like a, a unique uh, lens that I think uh, you know, the, the uninitiated <laughs> can access. Uh, it's written for, you know, to be accessible. Uh, for a larger audience, not just a bunch of us folks hanging out in ivory towers with our jargon, um, and so that that would be the the one I would I would push people to first. Yeah, that's I haven't heard of that before, so I'm very excited. I will go check it out. Um, okay, well then that's it for us. Uh, Dennis may not have. Uh, all the media to point you to, but you know that I tell you about mine all the time. You can find me on Facebook, Insta, and Twitter uh, at Stephanie Ruber. And I really am so, uh, so grateful again. So um, thank you, Dennis. Thank you a lot. Thank you, Stephanie. I appreciate it. All right, cool. Uh, and thank you everybody else for tuning in. I will, of course, as always, be back in a few days.